want to reflect on something that we confessed in our confession of sin. One of the things that we said is that we are slow to learn and that we are prone to forget. And it's that idea that we are prone to forget that is really going to play heavily in this, uh, this scripture, in this passage that we're about to read today. The fact is we are prone to forget all sorts of things, not least of which is who the people are that we surround ourselves with. That is to say, we forget who our spouses are. We forget who our parents are. That is to say, we forget what they have done for us and the depth that they have given to us. Uh, an example of this, a rather poignant example of this, is uh, a story that I heard once when a friend of mine had gone to prison. <laughs> he was at a Sunnyside prison uh, in eastern Washington. And uh, it had to do with, you know, failure to appear for a couple of court dates. And uh, so we, we, uh, we drove over in the, in the dead of winter to meet this friend of mine. And we were talking to him. We said, you know, Smitty, how is it in prison? He's like, well, the truth is, you know, the guards are pretty nice to us. But you've got to be careful not to be too friendly with them. He goes, there was a guy last week who was out on work release, because they'd let the, the prisoners do that, go out on work release for a period of time. And there was a guard that he had become rather friendly with. Him and this guard would kind of joke around. And on this occasion, the joking had gone too far. And this guard responded to this prisoner with some pretty intense discipline. I think, if, I, think, you know, I think it was one of those sorts of things where he ended up getting disciplined rather severely because at the end of the day, he had forgotten who this guard was and in effect forgotten who he was. See, he was a prisoner, all right? They're not buddies going to the bar to have a drink together. He had forgotten who he was because he had forgotten who the guard was. We, too, are prone to forget. Now, very thankfully, our orientation to God is not that of a prisoner to a guard, all right? I'm not trying to imply that. But there are some vast consequences that come from forgetting. So as I read this passage, I want you to consider three titles and descriptions of Christ that I think many of us are prone to forget. Maybe you've never even heard these descriptions of Christ. First is Christ as an apostle. The second is Christ as high priest. And the third is Christ as a master builder. All right, so turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. And we will read chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house." For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. This is God's word. Bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. I will ask the Lord to open our ears. Holy God, we are prone to forgetfulness. We have confessed this. 
And Holy God, we ask you, therefore, to open our ears, to open our hearts, to hear and discern and to understand who you are, and in so doing, to rightly understand who we are in relationship to you. Lord King, we are prone to forget these things. And if it were up to us, and if we had to well up from within ourselves a right understanding, Lord, we would be hopeless. But we know that your word is powerful, and we know that your word is attended by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, open our ears and open our hearts now. Please grace my tongue to speak your word in truth. Father, I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. Amen. So the right place to begin here is to ask ourselves, do we remember, do we know who our Savior is? We come to church on a weekly basis, not merely to confess our, to confess our sins, but to confess our faith. That's to say, we leave this place having confessed certain things about who Jesus is, and in confessing our sins, we've confessed certain things about who we are. And it was really no different in the New Testament era. If you know anything about this book of Hebrews, it's written to Jews who had come to faith in Christ and at this point seemed to be backsliding, seemed to be returning to the things that they left, a faith and a religion which is passing away, centered in the temple in Jerusalem. They seemed to be going back to these things rather than steadfastly following after Christ. And the suggestion that we have right here is that the problem is they have forgotten some rather pertinent things about what they confess and own about Jesus Christ. And therefore, it opens up saying, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Take a minute. Before you go down this path that you're headed down, take a minute and consider Jesus. Recall who this person is. And the first thing that he describes Jesus as is an apostle. Now, how many of you, if you're honest, you'd say, if I were to ask you to give me 10 descriptors of Jesus, how many of you can honestly say apostle would not come up in that list of 10 descriptions? Right? In fact, I think most of us, even if we're hardly biblically literate at all, probably know that the apostles are a distinct group from Jesus. Right? They're different. You have Jesus and you have the apostles. Right? Maybe you can't even name the apostles, all right? Just for the record, if, if you're naming the apostles and you say John, Paul, and then you say George Harrison, you're actually naming the Beatles, all right? It's not the apostles. But even if that's you, you probably know that Jesus is not normally or traditionally called an apostle. And sometimes to remember who people really are we have to search for some descriptions that are unfamiliar. You look at your wife, sometimes you have to go, wait a second, right? She's the one who raises my children when I'm at work, takes care of them, changes their diet. Oh, that's who she is again. It's not just my wife, Heather. That's who she is. Sometimes to remember who people are and what they have done, we have to search for a description and search for certain things that they have done, which we've overlooked for a long time. And in this case, the reason why most of us are disinclined to call Jesus an apostle is because we really don't know what an apostle is or what that word means. An apostle is someone who is sent out to represent the sender. Okay? People 
in positions of authority? Well, they have apostles. And if you think in governmental terms, you might think of ambassadors going out to represent our country um, on behalf of the head of state. The apostles that you know of were sent out by Jesus to proclaim a message to you. But see, Jesus himself was an apostle. Sent by God himself from the right hand of God the Father as God the Son to communicate a message to all of humanity. When we proclaim Jesus Christ as an apostle, do you know what we're implying? We are implying there is a great chasm of distance between us and God. And we're not talking about physical distance. What we're really talking about is ethical or relational distance. And it's something you're all very familiar with. You ever been in a big fight with a friend of yours and then sat down next to him and said, you feel so distant. You ever said that? Is that a familiar sort of description for you? Well, we are at a great distance from God in and by ourselves. And it is not a physical distance that we are talking about. It is an ethical, relational distance. We are separated from God. And Jesus is described as an apostle to emphasize the fact that there has and indeed continues to be distance from God when we consider ourselves in ourselves. This is a description of Christ that we mustn't forget because it implies something about who we are, right? It tells us that there is a huge problem. And the origins of this problem are not difficult to find in the scriptures. We are separated from God by a great distance, demanding an apostle because of our sins and transgressions. Isaiah 59, 2. Your sins have separated you from God. Your iniquities have placed distance between you and God. And every one of us, we're in need of an apostle. To span that distance and to re-establish relationship with this God with whom we are at odds. Now for many of us, it may seem odd because we don't remember a time when we first sinned against God to establish this sort of ethical distance of which I speak. And this demands that we understand the biblical doctrine of the covenant, that in fact... We were separated from God even before we were born. Think about your relationships. Say someone attacks or assaults you. You're probably going to avoid that person, right? It's going to create distance between you, right? It's also probably going to create distance between you and that person's children, right? If you're not going over to Todd's house, you're probably not going to see Todd's kids, we are at a distance from God, a distance that we inherited from our parents, and a distance that we have never known anything different than. That's the condition that we're in. Now, don't get me wrong here. You grow up to be just like your parents and to continue to sin against God and to continue to try to assault God. And that for that reason, again, our distance from God is reestablished. All of this requires an apostle to meet us. And we've got to consider something of the characteristic of this distance. When we get into 
issues and squabbles and fights with friends of ours, there's ethical distance, relational distance there. And we have several ways that we respond to it. The first thing that we often do, if we have sinned against someone or harmed someone, to make ourselves feel better, we like to downplay what we've done. Right? We like to kind of rationalize to ourselves how what we have done is not that bad. That's one of the sorts of things that we do in relationship to God as well. We downplay and we rationalize the degree to which we have sinned against and assaulted a holy God. The next thing that we do, actually, is we, we tend to demonize the other party. That's to say, to make ourselves feel better for the bad things we have done, we tend to rationalize it by telling ourselves that person that we have harmed really is pretty bad too. How many of you have ever seen the show? We're all ashamed to admit it, but it's called Cheaters. It's the one where there's this guy who, like, they, they, they track down someone who's cheating on someone else, and then, like, they catch them when they're, like, on a date with the person they're cheating with, and all the cars rush in like it's, like, they're the CIA, and, like, they surround this person. You ever seen this show? It's, it's so, it's, the person involved, it's always a pretty shameful thing, and we all feel bad watching it for being so entertained by it. You guys ever seen this? Okay, well, it's, it's a show. It was, it was on several years ago. And uh, I guess I'm the only one who has ever seen it. And uh, I'm starting to feel pretty guilty right now. Uh, well, I'll tell you what happens so you don't have to see it. Because it's one of our jobs as uh, ministers. Uh, well, in any case, I, th I think I watched it in college, for crying out loud. I guess that was like eight years ago. I just, I, for me, it seems like yesterday. I, I think, you know, it went from Seinfeld to Cheaters. I don't know. I mean, it was back in those days. In any case, what will happen almost every... Not that I've seen a lot of episodes, but if you've seen multiple episodes... <laughs> almost every episode, the person who's cheating will say to the person who they've cheated against, or their, their, their boyfriend or girlfriend who comes up, they'll be like, listen, but you were never around. You were always at work. And you're like, what? Really? Like... They were always at work, like, paying your bills and putting clothes on you and feeding you? Like, that's a reason to cheat? Like, this is ridiculous. These are the sorts of things that we do. How, how do we even, for a second, think to demonize someone that the reason I'm justified in cheating on you is because, well, you were spending so much time working to provide for me. These are the sorts of things that we do when there's ethical distance between us and another person. We first downplay it, we begin to demonize the other person, and I think the last sort of response that we're involved in is we really try to ignore and forget the depths of crime that we have committed against that person. This is true. We put it out of our minds. In fact, this isn't, uh, this isn't an abnormal thing, even in the realm of professional psychology. We talk about memories that are repressed. They can be times when you were sinned against, or times when you've sinned, where you literally have so suppressed that memory that it really doesn't occur to you at any point in your own consciousness. And at the same time, you're clearly affected by it and wounded by it for the whole of your lifetime. That is our distance from God. And this explains why some of you might be saying, hold on, hold on, Brant. How is it that I could have sinned against God to create this ethical distance when I don't even know if I believe in God? I'm agnostic. How can I sin against someone who I don't even know is there, right? Well, see, 
that's exactly what we would expect for people to be saying at various points. If what the Bible says is true. If we are really at such a tremendous ethical relational distance from God, we would expect some people to, to say, I really have no recollection, cognizance, or awareness of this sort of being that you're talking about. That is the depths of the effects of this ethical distance on us. And that is why it is so important that we understand and begin our conception of Jesus Christ as, first of all, an apostle sent out to shine light into this wounding darkness that we are enveloped in, both by heredity and by our own choices. The very same time we have to consider what the natural effects of this distance should be. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that if you're overseeing a nursery of children, if all the children in the room made a concerted effort to do everything you told them not to do, and to not do everything you told them to do, they would all be in a world of hurt. If you gave my children 24 hours of sustained disobedience to me and their mother, there would no doubt be, in the span of 24 hours, many fights, lots of tears, a totally messy house, and lots of poop and pee in the wrong places. Okay? That's the truth. There would be an absolute mess. And if you look around this world and you are disillusioned with what you see, and with the brokenness and the mess that you see... The message that we have here is that it is a direct effect, a natural effect of our broken relationship with God, our broken relationship with our Creator. And even on top of these natural effects of our sin, let's all be honest and say that if you had a room, a nursery full of disobedient children, you would justly and rightly apply certain penalties to those children. We are under the wrath of God justly and rightly. And it's not as trite and simple as being under the wrath of our caretaker in a nursery. Because the caretaker in the nursery might change the children's diapers and feed them some food and facilitate some activities. But the God that we have sinned against, he, on the contrary, has sustained every fiber of our being from the very beginning of our existence. He sustains all things around us at all times. And the very breath with which we might curse him or ignore him, the very energy and limbs with which we might turn away from him, those are all given to us by him. And the only just penalty for such an intense offense against our creator is death itself. And that's where it's from. Death is the righteous penalty of our sin. And all of this, all of this is suggested in the very fact that Christ had to be an apostle who came down from his exalted place to meet us, to reveal to us, and to restore relationship between us and God. In the verses before it says, Christ, of Christ, that he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And this takes us to our next point. If indeed we have sinned against God, 
We don't simply need a representative from God to come and meet us. Because all a, a mere representative of God could do is, well, frankly, tell us how we're at odds with God and we're in a lot of trouble. Very thankfully, Christ is not just an apostle and representative of God. Very thankfully, he is also a high priest. Now, if an apostle is one sent out from the authority to represent him to those whom that authority is at distance with, a high priest is someone who represents a people and goes on behalf of the people to make reconciliation with the one they have sinned against. Jesus then occupies a remarkable and unparalleled place in the whole cosmos. He is the lone being who can represent God to man and at the same time represent man to God. He's the lone being who can be for God, for his justice, for his right deserts, and for man. For us to reconcile us in spite of us and to place us in right relationship with God. Among these various descriptions of Christ, I imagine that high priest might be the first one that came on your list of ten, right? Maybe priest would come up if you were to describe Christ. But let us even remember what it means to call Christ a priest. In the Old Testament, priests would go and offer animal sacrifices in our place so that we could forego the wrath of God. Well, Jesus Christ is a remarkable sort of priest. He doesn't come to God with an offering of animals or something from the herd. Jesus Christ comes to God with himself as an offering in our stead that we might be reconciled to God the Father. And very thankfully, this Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh from God, has an offering for the Father that is super abundant. It is enough. It is utterly sufficient to put our sins behind us and to reconcile us to God, to make us right with God. This salvation that we believe in, that we gather around on a weekly basis, it is wholly and completely gratuitous. The only offering and the only priest who could reconcile us to God is not one from our midst, but God from heaven on our behalf. One of the most natural things for all of us to do when we hear about this plight and this distance that we have with God is to say, wait a second, can't we just make things right in the nursery here? Can't we just decide to start not fighting getting along together, quit going to the bathroom in the wrong places. Can't we just make that decision? Well, the answer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, is a resounding no. And even the answer of our experience is a resounding no. We are still dealing with the same sins, the same crimes, the same injustices today that we dealt with several thousand years ago. Can anyone deny that? Can anyone deny that we are still dealing with the same problems and our very best of efforts have done nothing, nothing to make things better? In the ultimate sense, we are still dying. We still have broken homes. We still have children who are abused. Unfortunately, though, despite 
all of this empirical evidence to, that would confirm the conclusion that we can't fix ourselves and indeed we need a high priest, we still try to fix ourselves, don't we? Not only that, we still look, we still look for very human sorts of heroes. We like heroes. You watch our shows. We like heroes who really have all sorts of imperfections. It makes us feel a lot better. Like maybe we can do something to reconcile ourselves to God or at least be righteous and fix this mess in front of us by ourselves. I'm going to reference another show. I mean, do you guys watch TV? I, 24 was a show that was on. I, I mean, okay, I think you've heard of it. All right, just making sure. Um, all right, well, I mean, you think about the Jack Bauer character, right? This guy's a hero. This guy who had a significant drug problem, who has, like, all these broken relationships with women, his daughter kind of got, got some friction in that relationship, who has been imprisoned a few times. This guy's a hero, right? These are the kinds of heroes that we make for ourselves. We even watch the show and we root for that hero, but we don't really consider how much like destruction like Jack leaves in his path all of the time. Our best heroes that we make for ourselves contribute to the very sorts of problems that we need freedom from. And it's for this reason that we need an apostle from God and we need a high priest on our behalf from God to reconcile us to God and make things right. In this particular passage, the Jews, the Hebrews, who are fleeing from the Christian faith and returning back to the old ways, they have a hero. Can anybody think of who might come to the top of the list as a hero, savior for the Jews? It's right here in the passage. It's Moses. Some of you, and some of the most sophisticated objectors to what I'm suggesting right now, might say, wait a second, Brant. No, 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 no. We can fix ourselves. We can solve this mess that we're in. Because there are all sorts of good people out there. And if we just get enough good people, we can all fix this together. In fact, look at the Bible itself. You've got all sorts of good people. You've got Abraham. You've got Moses. You've got David. Maybe the way you were taught to read the Bible is that all of these good people throughout the Old Testament and into the New, they're just examples for us to follow. If we would all just be more like Abraham, things would be great, right? You ever read the Bible like that? Kind of, it's just a hall of fame of good people. Jesus was maybe the best on the totem pole of goodness. I know lots of people who have read the Bible. I'm a, I'm a professor. I teach Old Testament. I've done so for about six years. You'd be amazed at the number of incoming freshmen read the Bible like that. Every story is just kind of this moralistic story that at the end of it we ought to go, we ought to be more like Abraham. We ought to be more like Moses. We ought to be more like David. And the people who would reject Christ in the New Testament era were saying the same thing. We don't need this high priest Jesus. We just need Moses. We just need, we just need David. Here's their, here's their response. We just need this Moses guy... And you can imagine why they'd say that. Because if anyone in the Old Testament might bear the title, both apostle and high priest, Moses would seem to be it. Moses went up to a mountain, met God up there, got the Ten Commandments, and was sent back down. That's an apostle representing God to the people. See it? Moses also, when the people sinned, he intercedes to God, prays to God, says, God, please don't judge these people. He would seem a lot like a high priest. 
right? So a lot of us say, well, there are a lot of good people, a lot of good representatives of God out there, lots of good reconcilers, high priests for God out there. Listen to what the author to the Hebrews has to say about this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was in all of his house. But then as Jesus, he says this, for he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Now let's take in what he's saying here. First off, he says Moses was faithful, a faithful steward in his own house. And house there doesn't mean physical building. It means his household. Same word in the Bible. That means Moses tended to the people of Israel well. He was a good shepherd and steward of these people. But then listen to what the text says. And he goes, Jesus is kind of like Moses. He takes care of his people, good steward over his house. But Jesus is different from Moses in this one little way. A little bit facetious there. Jesus is better than Moses like the builder of a house is better than the house itself. Jesus is better than Moses because guess what? Moses was only righteous and faithful insofar as he was fixed, built, shaped, and changed by Jesus. Yes, indeed, there are men in the Bible whose examples are to be followed, but only for one reason. Because they themselves were first fixed, changed, and fashioned by Jesus. You follow me there? Yeah, we like these heroes of the faith, but we recognize that they are only heroes insofar as they first were saved and represented by Jesus. And when we understand this comparison, in this light, it changes everything. It's like saying, well, okay, Jesus, he floats kind of like rocks float that sit on his shoulders. It's kind of a weird analogy. It's like it's saying like the sun shines brightly, kind of like gems shine brightly when they're illuminated by the sun. You see, see how that works there? You're really giving all of the glory and all of the credit to Christ in this. Yeah, Jesus is kind of like Moses, only because Jesus totally and completely changed Moses and made Moses his servant and a righteous guy. That is the picture we're given here. And Jesus, therefore, is this master builder. He's an apostle who overcomes that breach of distance. He is a priest, a high priest, who reconciles us to God. But thankfully, very thankfully, he is also a builder who crafts you and shapes you and changes you into the sorts of people that we want to be. Jesus is building something. He didn't just come to reconcile us to God, and that's it. He came to build a family. And that is good news, because the mess we talked about, the nursery that we're in, a bunch of disobedient kids, very thankfully in this life, we are told that we have something more. Jesus is building a family that is healthy. How many of you guys have unhealthy families? Family relationships that are messed up at the core. But you come here to be the structure of Jesus Christ, the house of Jesus Christ that is marked by, by health and right order to a degree that you will not find in the world. This is not a perfect place, but it is a harbor of safety and a better place than a world that does not know Jesus Christ. We should not be ashamed or fearful to say that. 
If we're ashamed or fearful to say that, we are ashamed and fearful to speak the truth about the master builder that we serve, Jesus Christ, the master head of household that we know. We shouldn't cower to say these things. In fact, as he goes on here, he describes Jesus in a rather, rather splendid fashion. He says this, for every house is built by someone. Every household, every community that you can think of has someone as their patriarch, all right? Could be your own household. You've got a family. You've got a wife and got some kids. Well, somebody initiated the creation of that household, right? You have a community that loves mountain biking. I don't know. Somebody is the, the founder of that community and household. But he goes on to say... Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. This is a way of saying that Jesus, this high priest, is God himself. Yeah, Moses, he he was the historical figure who oversaw the community of Israel, built that house up. But the builder of all things is this Jesus guy, this high priest, God. This, you guys, is good, good news. Maybe some of you think that Nate Walker built Christ Church. And don't get me wrong, we love the guy. He, he's our pastor here, right? And God used him to build this community. But guess what? Very thankfully, behind Nate Walker and acting in a much more profound fashion is Jesus Christ, God the master builder. This is good news. So Nate's not perfect. He's like Moses, not perfect. Moses eventually sinned, right? He is not perfect, and you wouldn't want to think that the thing holding this whole thing together, the person tending to this house and making sure that there really is new life and sanctity and holiness here, you don't want that to be Nate Walker, okay? I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. My church plan doesn't want that to be me. And those of you who are trying to craft and build Christian households, you really don't want to be the glue, You want to have a hand in it, and you want to be a part of it, but you want to know that back of it is a house builder who stands in a radically different position than you do. Because he's God. Because he's all-powerful. Some of you right now are trying to build families. Maybe you're even having trouble with fertility. Rest for a second. Christ is the builder. He is the one who fashions and structures things. If you've only got one kid right now and you want three, just take a breath and let the master builder tell you that one kid is going to do it for now. You have community groups? Maybe you're, maybe you're like, our community, I just want some more people to come. Christ is the master builder. Take a rest, do what you've been asked, and rest in the master builder. You guys want Christ Church to be a mega church with 10,000 people? Well, you know what? Christ is the builder. We need to be faithful. We'll see. Some of you guys, no, that's not what we were looking for. Um, all right, but you know, if it happened, you'd have to be like, geez, master builder, I guess we're going to have to split and make another church or something. But he does things, right? That we wouldn't expect, and we have the privilege to rest in that. And on top of all of this, we are given some extremely good news here at the end. It says, again, Moses was faithful in all of his household as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of later. That is to say, Moses 
was at the very most a faint image and a testimony to the Christ who is to come. That's what all of we are, too. We are testimonies to the Jesus that we are served. We are not perfect replicas of Jesus. That's all we've ever been called to be is a testimony. You haven't been called to be the sinless divine apostle sent from the right hand of God to make propitiation for human sin and to get rid of it so that we can be reconciled to God. You've not been called to do that. We can all take a deep, a deep sigh of relief there. Don't try to be that. Try to be a testimony to Jesus Christ in your imperfection and he will be glorified. The last thing we are told about this builder this is one of those controversial points, but I'd have to say this text is rather clear about it. This Christ builder does not build things that fall away. Listen to what he says here. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, the divine son of God, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. All right, so I've been a logic professor for the last six years, and this is where the logic professor in me has to come out, okay? This passage sets up perseverance in the faith as a necessary condition for being the household of God. Look at the way it's phrased. We are, present tense, the household of God, on the condition that we persevere unto the end. Now, if we were to put this in logical terms, it'd be something like this. I'll give you an analogy. You might say, he is the winner of the race if he has a gold medal. That makes sense. Having a gold medal is like a necessary condition of really being the winner. If you do not have a gold medal, what can you conclude about whether you're the winner or not? You're not the winner. Let's try another example. If you are a dog, then you are a mammal. It's a necessary condition to be a mammal, to be a dog, okay? So if I say it's not a mammal, then we know that it's not a dog. See, this is logic. You know, this is the sort of thing that we, we go through in class. These are all uh, substitution examples. Let's go to our original example. If you are the house of God present, then you will persevere in the faith. So if you do not persevere in the faith, then what? You are not the household of God in the present. It's about as clear as it could be in logical terms that the house that Jesus Christ constructs does not have replaceable pieces. The house that he is building is not made up of stones that eventually are going to be removed and replaced by others. It is built with stones that last. And that lasts because of the power and because of the wisdom of the builder, not because of the dignity and greatness of the stone. Right now, you are here gathered to be the household of God. Some of you, I have no doubt, you think that your perseverance in the faith, your perseverance in Christ is ultimately up to you. You are the one who's got to hold yourself there. If that was what the author wanted to say, it would say this. You will be the household of God if you hold firm to the end. If you hold firm to the end, then you will turn yourself into the household of God. You will prove yourself to be his stones. That's what it would say, but it doesn't say that. 
It says, you are the household of God if you persevere into the end. And that perseverance, that perseverance is the fruit of Christ's work and the fruit of the fact that he is a master builder. Good news. See, what you guys are doing when you come here to church and when you pursue a Christian life of faithfulness and building and witnessing, you guys are not obtaining a status as the building of God. At the very most, you are evidencing it. You are showing Christ's workmanship to be true. You're not earning it. That is good news. And remarkably, you could all be doing the same thing. Coming to church today, half of you thinking that you are making yourself into God's creation as if you're the builder and the other half of you understanding that you are coming here simply to be built up and to receive the grace of the builder anew. You could all be coming for completely different reasons. I want you guys to leave church today understanding what really happens in this place. You are coming here to be built up by Christ, not to build up on Christ. You are coming here to be encouraged by Christ, not to prove yourself to Christ. You are coming here to lay hold of what he is graciously giving you, not to produce an offering for him. This is good news. Rest in it. Hold fast the confidence that you have. How do you hold that fast? Not by searching your soul and trying to figure out if you're really saved at your core. You hold fast by hearing Christ's word anew resound in your ears that you are my children, you are my people, and resting. This service was opened up with a statement to the effect that uh, we are to, to rest in Christ. That's my message here, too. We're supposed to rest and be confident of who we are as Christ's workmanship because of what he's done for us. I would normally tell you to, to trust after you participate in the Lord's Supper, but Nate didn't provide that today. It's not to cause any sort of doubt in your minds. I want you to know that. <laughs> it's really just because he's probably pretty stressed out and didn't want to tell me how to do it right. In any case, <laughs> next week when you partake of the supper, partake of it and do one thing. Just believe. That is the only condition that Christ has asked us for in terms of our own assurance that we are saved. Just keep believing. Keep coming back and receiving. Keep hearing the word of our Savior resound in your ears that you are his child and that he has made you right with God. You'll bow your heads. I'll ask the Lord to bless you. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you so much for this body of believers that is outside of my immediate sphere of ministry. It is a constant reminder that you are the builder. I didn't do anything to construct this body of believers. And the people in these seats, they didn't do anything to make this in the ultimate sense either. You have stood behind every steward of the ministry in this church, and you have fashioned something beautiful. And you are continuing to fashion it. Lord, I pray that after we have received the bad news that comes with the fact that we need an apostle and a priest, we can also rest in the good news that indeed an apostle and a priest and a builder has come. And our job, our job is just to believe you, to trust you, and to rest in you.
Lord, indeed, give these people rest. I pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.